What would you say the biggest problem facing the human race is today? Climate change, wealth inequality, reality TV. These are all good options, but in my recent book, The Psychopath Epidemic, I try and make the case that actually the biggest problem facing the human race today and the thing that is standing behind creating those other problems that I mentioned are psychopaths. Now, most people, when they think of psychopaths today, still think of, I think, serial killers or third world dictators. And that's mostly thanks to Hollywood's depiction of psychopaths over the last 30 or 40 years. When in fact, your average psychopath is more likely to be the movie studio producer or the director of those films, not the serial killers. They're the ones that we need to be worried about. In my book, I argue that psychopaths are in positions of power in all of our large and influential organizations, not just business organizations, but political, religious, military, law enforcement, the justice system, the media, education, etc. And that if we could remove psychopaths from positions of power in these organizations, we would probably be able to solve a lot of the world's problems much faster, much easier than we can with them getting in the way. So this new podcast series, by, my, my name's Cameron Riley, by the way. Hi, if you've never listened to my podcast before. Thanks for joining me. In this podcast series, uh, The Psychopath Epidemic, I'm going to be talking with other people about psychopaths and the problems that they face and what we can do about it. I'm very pleased that my first guest is a fellow Aussie, fellow Queenslander, Dr. Nathan Brooks, PhD, forensic psychologist. He and a couple of his colleagues have, in fact, also just come out with a book on psychopaths. And Nathan joined me recently to talk about his work and his views on the problem posed by psychopaths in the workplace. Nathan, thanks for coming on and, and chatting to me. I'm excited that uh, you've agreed to be my first guest. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Where, 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 you, where you're based is a good starting point. Thank you, Cameron. Well, it's great to be involved and in talking about such an important topic. So I'm based currently at Central Queensland University. I've recently relocated up to Townsville, so I'm working in our forensic psychology program up here, which is which is a new program. And my background for, for many years prior to that has been working in both the, the public and the private sector as a forensic psychologist, particularly with high-risk offenders, violent offenders, sexual offenders, and also, of course, the subject for today, psychopathic individuals. Can you explain for those of us who 
Like everything that uh, we know about forensics comes from CSI, what a forensic psychologist actually does? Yeah, so it's very different to, to CSI. So instead of looking at the the scientific leftovers in terms of things like DNA, etc., that's not the area of focus for forensic psychology. So we're really looking at the role of psychology in crime. So things such as the, the offender's motivations, the reasons that they acted in specific ways, why they may have chosen a certain victim or a certain method or process of offending. And it's really trying to understand the the interplay and the, the number of psychological factors that drive offending behaviour and also how that results in, in that expression of that offending. Wow. And your work in the past, you said, has led you to do some uh, study on, on psychopaths. And I believe you and a couple of colleagues have a book coming out on psychopaths uh, this month. Is that right? Yes, yes. So it was just released a couple of days ago, actually. Oh, it's, terrific. It, yeah, thank you. So it's really around – it's it's more of a, a critical review from – probably in some ways that, that academic perspective of, of where are we at with corporate psychopathy. So what what do we know and what maybe do we require further investigation around? But, but really, we've gotten to a point now that we can have quite a strong argument to say that, that it is a thing and that, you know, we do see corporate psychopaths or successful psychopaths. So the book really is, is that academic perspective on trying to create the idea and, and trying to get the message out there that this, this is a valid area um, and we're really starting to get the science now to support that. And so the book the book title is, is Corporate Psychopathy, Investigating Destructive Personalities in the Workplace. Fantastic. I'm really... I was really excited um, when I heard that you were coming out with a book that was an academic book, because mine is most definitely not an academic book. Uh, <laughs> although, you know, I, I read as much of the academic literature as I could get my hands on in research for the book, but mine is very much a book designed for a popular audience. Uh, but it was great to know that you were coming out with yours quickly on the heels of mine. So if anyone complains... That my book uh, about my lack of academic credentials, I can just say go read Nathan's book. That's great. <laughs> so uh, explain to me if you can, um, sort of the the main ideas of your book. Well, part of it is doing a. It initially begins by a, a, a quite a, an extensive overview of the literature on psychopathy, and. I mean, there are some people out there that still debate the idea of psychopathy, but for, from my perspective, and I, and I think many others in the field, it's certainly an established construct, and there's there's a body of evidence around psychopathy in the criminal context, and we're now starting to see emerging evidence in relation to some of these individuals that may be able to reside in the community and then some that may even be able to be successful. So that, that's where we initially begin is looking at where are we currently at and then moving more into exploring, for example, differences between criminal psychopaths and non-criminal psychopaths. Um, we also propose a model because at the moment we tend to have some issues around we view psychopathy as, as essentially 
being one entity or everyone that is psychopathic is essentially the same, which is problematic for a number of reasons. So within the book, I proposed the importance of really having a classification criteria. So how do we narrow down what type of psychopathic individual are we dealing with? And then we also look at processes of assessment within the corporate or the work or the, the business setting. Um, um, and there's a few different assessment modalities out there. We have developed what, we, what we've termed the corporate personality inventory, which is, it's a twofold measure. So it's a self-report measure. So that's filled in by the, the individual. And then also we have a third party version of that. So that's someone rating the individual. Um, and there's another measure that's quite that's gained quite a lot of traction and that is uh, through Robert Hare's work and that's the B-scan and that's another measure that's currently under development at the moment. And then lastly, we finish the book off by looking at what do we do about the problem and that's really the essential question in all of this and part of that answer is the recruitment stage and then the second part is the management stage. Mm. That's uh, fantastic because they, these are a lot of the issues. You know, I, I guess the vast majority of my book is talking about why I think psychopaths in positions of management inside of all sorts of organisations, not just business, but political organisations, religious organisations, the military, law enforcement, the justice system, the media, etc., uh, is a problem for society. And looking at examples of how I think that can be identified and how it manifests, not just in terms of individual behaviour, but in terms of cultural behaviour inside of these organisations as well, when you have a sufficient tipping point of psychopaths in the management, I think it can then become embedded into the culture of an organisation. And I go through examples of that. But the last chapter is about what do we do about it? And, you know, in the media interviews I've been doing in the last couple of weeks since my book came out, when they often ask me, what's the number one thing we can do? I, I say that, you know, I, I want to see testing done, mandatory testing done, particularly of individuals in management across these organizations, um, some sort of clinical testing on using Bob Hare's PCLR or whatever tools are available to us to determine uh, who the psychopaths are in the management ranks um, because I think it's it's important that we at least know what we're dealing with here. What's Can you tell me about the B-scan? What's the B-scan? I haven't heard of that before. So that's Robert Hare's measure that, that he's developed along with, I'm not going to remember all the author names, but... Um, one of the other ones is Paul Babiak. Uh -huh. So he's been heavily involved in, in the development of that. And, and here in Babiak had that earlier study back in about 2010, which was one of the first on corporate psychopathy. But that the measure has, my understanding, developed from that early study. And it's it's very similar in terms of it being a self-report measure, uh, but also it does have a third-party component as well. So, so it's currently in the process, a little bit like the the tool that we've developed of being established, developing that that normative data to know that it is reliable, it is valid, and the findings that we get back are actually telling us what they should be telling us. So let's let's talk about how much of a 
problem psychopathy inside of organizations is do you do you have any data to talk that can suggest numbers the extent of the problem yes absolutely so i think one of the first challenges is we need to think about the sample that we're looking at so who are we testing and we one of the reasons i think there's variations for example in prevalence rates is because it varies based on the population that, that you're testing. So that early study that, that Robert Hare did in 2010 with, with Paul Babiak, that found around about 4% of the CEOs or of that business sample that they examined met the, the PCLR or, or the, that psychopathy threshold to be considered as being psychopathic. We've also done some research in the supply chain management professionals, and we use a different measure for that. We use the psychopathic personality inventory, and we found quite a high level of psychopathic traits within that sample. So approximately 20, 21% of the sample were scoring above the clinical cutoff. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they are psychopaths or psychopaths per or psychopathic per se but it means that they've got a clinical level of psychopathy and no doubt among a proportion of them they would absolutely be be psychopaths or psychopathic and what do you think the consequences are both to the organization and to society more broadly of having psychopaths in the management ranks? Well, it's never, it's much to misconception. It's never positive. There tends to be, uh, you know, an argument out there that maybe we should be hiring these types of individuals because they can make the tough decisions. And and really the counter argument to that is that if you're wanting long-term prosperity or success for your business, that will never happen. If, you, if you're looking for maybe someone that can be a bit of a hired gun and come in and do a clean out, uh, then maybe, maybe a psychopathic individual might be the right person short term, but long term, it, it's going to have a number of costs for the organization. And I, and I think first of all, we look at the cost of employee turnover things such as bullying and stress that arise within an organisation, the reputation of the business or the organisation, and, and then there's also the other side of things which could be fraudulent behaviour or even the, the outright decline of, of an organisation. And, and probably Enron is a very good example of that. There was a number of individuals in there which th- there's been some opinion potentially they were psychopathic and the outcome that happened for Enron was quite uh, quite devastating, really. It was a company that was very successful and it went into absolute decline. It's funny. I, I've got an entire chapter on Enron in my book. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, there's some great stories that came out of there. Uh, just the, the sheer arrogance of a lot of their – and the quite public arrogance of their senior executives for, for many, many years – uh, is quite astounding when you you read some of the quotes. Um, yeah, and and what about outside of uh, business? Is your book mostly looking at corporations, or do you also look at uh, some other fields like politics and religion? 
No, so we mainly we mainly look at it in terms of that that workplace setting. There's there's an element of overlap with criminal psychopathy because it's very hard to it's very hard to ever talk about psychopathy without first looking at what we know in terms of the, the criminal side of things. But it, it it's more tailored at the workplace. But and and that's the like, the aim of doing that was because it provides a bit of a central focus to begin from and. I think once we can get that area established, then it really allows allows others to start stepping out and, and looking at some of the professions that, that maybe we don't always get to, such as areas such as religion, even even in sport, for example. So it's probably been the central mm. starting point. But I think from the conversations around corporate psychopathy, we, we'll definitely start looking into other areas. Yeah, the... the um the connection for me with with organisational psychopaths happened when I, I'd already been working on my book for a couple of years, trying to work out why is the world so fucked up and uh, why do I continually see in the news people in positions of power and leadership just doing horrible things that no normal person would ever be able to live with themselves or, or sleep at night if they were doing these things uh, over and over. And um, in, in you know, reading up on, reading some of the psychopathy literature sort of made the connection that these sorts of behaviours exactly map to what comes naturally to a psychopath. Mm. Mm. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about why you think psychopaths do well inside of businesses? Absolutely. Part of it that they're drawn to, you know, psychopaths are, they like to dominate others. And the corporation structure, for example, offers offers a lot of power. And that hierarchical nature as well of organisations also tends to allow psychopathic individuals a level of protection. They're, they're able to to hide behind that hierarchy, but also manipulate that hierarchy to their advantage. So so it has it has functional purposes in in that respect. But also as well, there's there's many individuals in, within an organisation, and we have rules and policies, and we often find as well that psychopathic individuals are able to use those rules and policies to their advantage. So most people tend to be guided by the by rules, policies, that that's the boundaries of, of where behaviour may stop or start. But for psychopathic individuals, that's really around, okay, well, these are the weaknesses or the vulnerabilities or, or this is something that I can actually leverage and exploit and use to my advantage. So I can, I can use, for example, legislation around bullying to, to my advantage because I'll look for patterns in behaviour and start to collect information and use that against the person. And so th- there's a level there where they can be very, very manipulative, but very calculated in how they go about, in in essence, undermining and destroying um, colleagues or also managers that are, that are up in the position that they're actually seeking. Yeah, I mentioned to you off air that I worked at Microsoft for a long time and, um, you know, there, I had at least one manager there who, um, at the time and afterwards, I just wrote off as uh, as an asshole. Uh, it was only when I started working on this book that I realised he was a classic psychopath, mm. very very charming, 
um, to to uh, well, when, whenever he wanted to be, extremely, extremely charming, uh, f- sort of funny, uh, a bit like Ricky Gervais yep. in The yep. Office, like just everyone's everyone's sort of friend. G'day, mate. Um, but behind the scenes. Uh, doing horrible stuff, lying, manipulating, telling one person one thing and the colleague the complete opposite thing, and and uh, yeah, it was only when I started realizing that these are psychopathic traits that I made the connection. <clears throat> and but it's been funny in in the process of writing the book and releasing it and talking about it when I explain to people the behavioral traits of a psychopath and explain that it's they're not we're not just talking about serial killers um what a white collar what i call in my book a garden variety psychopath looks like um everyone almost everyone to a fault says oh yeah i i've worked with one of those i mean everyone has a story about Mm. places they've worked where they've where they've had a boss or a colleague who fit this bill so i i think it's far more prevalent than maybe we think absolutely and i I mean, even if we worked off Robert Hare's findings, which roughly 4% of CEOs, for example, could be psychopathic, that's that's still uh, an enormous amount, even if we were being conservative. So the, the implications as well of not, first of all, not knowing that or not detecting that and having businesses run by that type of individual, I mean, they're enormous. And we, we sit back and look at the chaos that's going on around you know, in the in current sort of leadership circles, and really, psychopaths thrive in that chaos. And at the moment, it seems as though, particularly across many many areas, with whether it's with our world leaders or even back here at home, that there's a lot of chaos going on. And even with the rise of social media, the ability to convey, for example, false information or even the power of owning the information that is shared. It's it's a fascinating time from that pers- or time for for chaos to be really arising. And from that perspective, it, it's it's quite intriguing to be observing what's happening. And sometimes it feels as though you're you, we're all just spectators to the chaos that is going on. Yeah, there's chaos and, you know, I've been making the argument that I think dealing with the psychopaths in positions of wealth and power is the number one problem that we need to face globally today because all of the other problems that we have, dealing with climate change, dealing with wealth inequality, dealing with terrorism, dealing with... Oh, this this whole raft of issues that get talked about all the time in the media. At the end of the day, I think we could we could probably solve all of those quite quickly if we could get the psychopaths out of power. I think it's the psychopaths that are leading us into all of these situations uh, uh, without without that sense of uh, empathy for their fellow human beings trying to do the right thing. At the end of the day. I believe that most people, uh, whether it doesn't matter what your politics are, whether you're left or right or in the centre, at the end of the day, most of us are good people. We want the same things. We don't want other people to be harmed. We may argue over the ways to get there, but at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. Psychopaths don't, though, do they? They don't really have the ability to care about 
what happens to other people. They only think about themselves. It's all me, absolutely. Me, me, me. And it's about how is this person useful for me? And, and that's the idea really around that psychopathic people tend to use people as objects. They're, they're there to serve a purpose. And then when that purpose is been fulfilled or they're no longer useful, then it's really discarding them and, and moving on. And I think you definitely make a good a good point in terms of absolutely decisions could be made in some respects rather simply. But it's and I go back to the to the idea of the chaos. It's that smoke and mirrors. And when you're we all get very much caught up in the smoke and mirrors and when you can actually stop and see see the act for what that is and what's going on behind behind the surface yes it, it, it sometimes is quite frightening but it's also in many respects puzzling why simple decisions can't be made and I think the the idea of creating the smoke and mirrors is often because it, it is. It's a form of distraction and it's also mm. allows time to you know, potentially make other deals or engage in other behaviours that, that are self, self-fulfilling self and self-promoting for that individual. Yeah, I would add that not only do psychopaths use individuals uh, to to extract the, the maximum amount of personal benefit, they also use situations scenarios well, you, you you talked about their ability to use rules and laws to their advantage earlier i think it's the same with scenarios like global tensions uh, they they find the way to extract the most out of that situation uh, for their own benefit let me ask you about um, as a as a professional uh, how well do you think psychopathy is understood in the general public? Generally not that well. We tend to base that on the Hollywood perception of, of what we see on TV. And, you know, the classic one is Hannibal Lecter or the or the serial killer. But really, the, most psychopaths are, are not necessarily like that. We certainly have a handful that are, but... Yeah, many are, in many respects, unremarkable. They could be the neighbour next door. They, they, you know, they could be the the family friend, and they could also, for example, you know, as many people have found over the years, they could also be a husband or wife, or your husband or wife. Mm. So the, it it isn't very well understood, and there tends to be the the idea that they will all be violent, and that they'll be quite unstable as well in many respects or the other option we see is that they'll, they'll be this charming person and it tends to we tend to connect the idea for example maybe of narcissism as being psychopathic but mm. really generally there's there's not a strong understanding and that's also understandable because it's a very complex area yeah and and of course as you said earlier there's still debate around the terminology <clears throat> obviously the DSM 5 uh, sort of bundles up psychopathy and sociopathy and a number of other disorders into antisocial personality disorder i i use the term psychopathy just because i think it's you know it's it's uh something that we use in common parlance and it's easier to communicate. Mm. I've had a lot of people ask me the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath 
My answer is usually, look, it's a little bit muddy and I've read lots of different things in the clinical literature about they're the same, they're different, uh, they don't exist. Do you have a do you have a position on the differences? America tends to favor sociopathy or sociopaths, but particularly in Australia and also probably the UK, we tend to go with psychopathy. The, the, the main difference from my point of view is just the argument of what what is the causality or what's caused the condition. So psychopathy would gen, generally would say it's a combination of genetics and also environmental contributions. Uh, the idea of sociopathy or sociop- someone being a sociopath is that it that it's a result of the environment or upbringing factors or in social influences that have caused that. So, re- but really, <laughs> probably being a little bit biased, but I think psychopathy is probably the more appropriate way to look at that. And we don't really have an absolute certainty around what is the sole contributing cause. I think there probably is an argument that it is a combination of both genetics and environmental factors. I don't think we could say that it's solely a result of the a person's upbringing or social influences. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, my my for the last few years, my rough way of delineating the two is psychopaths are born and sociopaths are made, but I know it's usually everything's a lot more complex than that. Well, that's a good way of looking at it. And, I mean, just, just going back to the idea, year of environmental influences one of the one of the arguments is often the idea of trauma and the contribution of, mm. of trauma to the development of psychopathic personality but there's been some interesting research around the for example violent psychopathic individuals and it, there tends to be a relationship with moderate levels of psychopathy and trauma but as you get to that upper it echelons or the higher levels of psychopathy, that relationship seems to uh, basically disappear or really reduce in strength. So the higher level of psychopathy, there's not necessarily that support for trauma actually being a contributing factor. When you say the higher levels, you mean uh, in terms of a, a ranking? Yeah. So if we work, for example, on the, the PCLR, so on, on Robert mm-hmm. Hare's measure, which it ranges from zero to 40. So as you get mm-hmm. around about that 30 onwards, even higher, mm. maybe 34, 35, 36, the higher up that scale that you go, the research has found that there's less likely to be an association between a history of trauma and that higher level of psychopathy scores. So- Apart from having people sit tests, what do you think we should do about corporate psychopaths? Well, I think the first the first part has to be the recruitment stage, and that that obviously is the the testing component. But the other side of it is, I guess, if that fails, then what do we do once the individual is is in the organisation. And I mean, the first logical thing would be extending the probationary period. The, the importance of obviously performance reviews. We would argue, myself and my, my colleagues have suggested that also some form of, 
of behavioural type of assessment once they are within the organisation and during that probation period. So that may, for example, be getting a, a peer or a, a, at the same level and also a manager to rate the person's performance. So trying to really get in some in some ways different levels of rating. So how are they with their colleagues, but how are they also uh, from a performance level? And then we can then we get a little bit more complex in terms of what are the actual management strategies once we've actually identified that there's potentially some problematic personality traits at play. And that that has a series of implications. First of all, how do we manage the immediate concern? And that depends on what the immediate concern is. There's been some suggestion that maybe psychopaths could be successful if they are essentially removed from having contact with others and put on a special reward-based program where that allows them to feel special and it gives them a way to channel and focus that instrumental motivation and they are rewarded for basically meeting milestones or goals, but they have limited interaction with other employees. The other option is really getting into that performance management space, which which is complex because then we're looking at, okay, how can that be set up? So essentially that may allow the person to be exited from the business. But if we're talking, if the psychopath in question is the CEO of an organisation, it can be very hard to have their work peer-reviewed unless it's uh, the chairperson or something Abs- like that. Yes, absolutely. And so I guess, the, you know, depending on the arrangement of the company, it could be there's a board of directors, so raising mm-hmm. concerns up to up to that level. We've also got- And just hoping that they're not all psychopaths yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. I guess there's the option of, of uh, whistleblowing, but the, unfortunately, the other mm. advice is that coming back, you know, is coming back to what are you as an individual wanting out of your role, and is staying within the organisation actually providing you that? It, it, I think, it really has to come back to looking at your own personal values because at the basic level of psychology Sorry, are you you're talking about a, the psychopath making this decision or people working with the psychopath no no the the, the individual right. within within the organization so yeah. if you've got a psychopathic ceo and yeah. you're having a, you know an incredibly hard time you've got to come back to what can you actually control in that situation and ultimately your your ability to to influence the, the psychopath, for example, is very, very limited. And I think, unfortunately, the only thing you can control is your decisions and your choices. And it may mean that you yourself need to leave the organisation. And that's a, that's a that's a tough reality, but that's also something that really is a, a legitimate concern for people and something that they need to consider. Yeah, I, I talk a lot about that in my book as well. The you know what what are your choices if you think you're working for an organisation with psychopathic management? You can try and change it from within. You can leave. You can become a whistleblower. And then I look at all of the uh, well, some examples of people that have done all of these things. They you know none of them end well, unfortunately. Usually, <laughs> I think that uh, I, one of the things I recommend is. 
I want to see organisations have some sort, if, if there is a psychopath uh, identified in senior management and they're going to remain, you, you need some sort of uh, a group of people that have also been tested and found not to be high on the psychopath checklist to review certain decisions that the psychopath is making with regards to the business and uh, they need to be approved by a board of confirmed non-psychopaths to make sure this, if none of these decisions that the psychopath is making, let's say it's a CEO, are uh, dangerous to people inside or outside of the organization. Well, I think I was just going to add around, you know, there's a there's a huge conversation here around the, the testing and the recruitment stage. And ultimately, it's not letting the person through the door. And that's, I think if we are to create real change, it's making sure that the foundation is set up correctly from the beginning. So that that's where at that that testing that recruitment stage is essential and probably what I what I would add there is that we have it wrong at the moment we're so focused on does the person have the skills to work history and we play such limited limited or little value on character and we really need to flip that around we need to be looking at character as the first priority and then if they have the right character, then do they have the right skills and the right work history? Yeah, quite often, uh, you know, we're looking for people that are a cultural fit for the organization. But if the culture is psychopathic, then you're just bringing in more psychopaths. The question I wanted to ask you, uh, this is one I get a lot, is when I talk about testing psychopaths, uh, getting them, you know, having them sit tests, uh, people will often say, well, they'll lie. They're not going to reveal that they're a psychopath. They'll just lie on the test if they know what you're testing for. What are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting argument because there's certainly grounds for that. And if you've got a very intelligent and well-versed psychopathic individual, there's, there's an absolute risk that that will happen. So self-report measures have utility, but basing decisions solely on those, we would need to be very cautious about that. So there's test, I think testing should never be just one measure. So there would need to be a series of measures, a series of different approaches to how you would go about testing this. And part of that might be a self-report measure. But I would also suggest things such as integrity testing, honesty testing, moral reasoning, uh, looking at problem solving and the ability to, to apply ethical problem solving skills. So there's ways of really trying to triangulate that approach. The other side of that as well is making sure that pro proper reviews are done of the person before they actually enter the company. So often, you know, our referee checks are pretty average at best so it tends to be we might take one referee check or two referee checks there's also been some suggestions around the importance of getting a referee check from a manager a referee check from a former colleague and maybe even a referee check from someone that worked underneath that person so again covering multiple perspectives and probably the the other thing I'd also add 
in addition to the, the testing side of things is the interview. And the interview is just as crucial as the testing that is done. So while we can have test instruments and self-report is okay as long as we're not solely relying on that, the interview needs to be structured the, the correct way. Yeah. I mean, we, we need to have higher recognition of the issue of corporate psychopaths so it can be built into the interview and the screening process. It's not going to help us deal with people that are already on the inside in levels of senior management, though. And one of the one of the um, responses I've had for people is, you know, in terms of uh, psychopaths and self-reporting and or sitting tests, is I wonder if psychopaths would would even care about trying to hide the fact that they're psychopaths. Because my, after reading all of the literature on it, uh, and and having known and worked for a bunch of them, I get the sense that they don't care what we think of them. They don't. They think of themselves as winners. And it, this is like Donald Trump's, you know, classic example of if you like me and agree with me, you're winners, and if you don't, you're just a loser. So it doesn't matter. And and I don't I don't think psych, I mean all the literature says that their ability to cognate risk uh, is quite low because I I'm not I'm talking about the ones that actually have not burned out along the way I, I think a lot of psychopaths you know the the, the literature talks about one percent or two percent of the population being psychopaths and as I point out at the beginning of my book that's couple of hundred thousand people in Australia, adults in Australia, a couple of million adults in the United States, 60 million adults worldwide um, high uh, on the psychopath list. But I'm sure a lot of those burn out along the way. They don't have the intelligence. They don't have uh, the, the, the uh, training, the experience to make it into the senior ranks of organization. So as you said, they're, they're the, the abusive husband or wife, um, they, they may have a low-ranking job somewhere. But for the, um, the ones that have managed to play the game well enough to make it into the uh, ranks of the successful, they're wealthy, they're powerful, I don't think they give a shit what any of us think about them. They they believe inherently, and their experience has taught them, that they will win at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what you bring, they will win because they're more cunning, they're more bloodthirsty, they're willing to do what you're not willing to do. They think they're smarter, they think they're superior. And so they don't really care if we just say they're psychopaths. I think their response, well, I expect their response would be, well, so what? I'm a winner. What do, what's your take on my, uh, uh, you know, side of the curb analysis? There's absolutely there. There's no doubt that there's that bold and brazen nature associated with psychopathy. And I think for a certain percentage, we could definitely say that they don't care. And there's that 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 arrogance in terms of completing, for example, an assessment tool and thinking that already they they're going to come out with fantastic results and that you know the the findings really won't matter anyway but the other side of it as well and there tends to be some research around that supports this is that psychopaths can also be able to modify their behavior depending on the stakes mm -hmm. 
And this really comes back to their instrumental nature. So we tend to find that, yes, they don't care, but if you make the stakes important enough, then they do care yeah. and they will curtail their behaviour. Yeah, no, I, I, I can totally see that if they believe the stakes are high enough, if it, if it's going, to, if they really do think it's going to get in the way of their personal success, then they will. I mean, they're also master manipulators, right? So they will <laughs> manipulate the the situation and their answers, etc., to to suit if they really believe the stakes are high. But uh, I, I also think, you know. Uh, outside of the, the really being on the line, they'll just tell you, "Yeah, I, I don't give a shit what you think. Get out of my get out of my face." Um, mm. And that's where, particularly when you start having interpersonal interactions with them, that will emerge absolutely. Maybe in the stakes of, you know, a CEO going for a high position, that, that may be enough for them to change that responding to present the image that they think that they need to present. And uh, I, I guess I would bring that back, for example, for a psychopath going for parole. They can be incredibly effective at manipulating that process and present the image that they need to present there, again, because the stakes are high. But, yes, once they're in that organisation, they will be blunt and brutal and ruthless and cruel, particularly if the people that they're doing that to are of little value to them. Yeah, I was, um, you know, I just pulled up the, the Enron chapter in my book. I, could, I, I called it Survival of the Nastiest. And just some of the, <laughs> some of the quotes from, uh, you know, as I said before, their executives, just outstanding. Um, there's the one here where uh, Skilling, uh, Ted Skilling, no, Jeffrey Skilling, who was uh, the CEO for a while there, just uh, when when one Wall Street analyst questioned him on one of their calls about how they could keep their uh, stock value so high, he said, "Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that, asshole." On a on a call with <laughs> other Wall Street analysts, like just the the, <laughs> the extreme arrogance uh, is is astounding. Anyway, it was the wild wild west, really. It wasn't in many ways, and they they did what they like, and and they got away with it for quite a while. Oh, for a long time. And with the support of a lot of major financial institutions, a lot of, you know, the the media that covers uh, Wall Street, uh, Wall Street analysts, no one really got in their way. In fact, they were lauded as being rock stars and superheroes and... Uh, you know, they were on the front covers of, of business magazines constantly until it all came falling down. Absolutely. And there's been obviously other examples with, you know, with, the, with the GFC in 2000, 2008 and the things that were going on there in investment banking. And, of course, the, the other one that's often thrown around when we talk about corporate psychopathy is, is Bernie Madoff and the, the Ponzi scheme that he was running and, whether Madoff was psychopathic, I, I think is is a is a, another conversation. But but he definitely had some of those traits, and I'm not sure if he has been assessed as that. But the the boldness that went on there, and the the cruelty and ruthlessness in that Ponzi scheme was was quite remarkable. And he's often 
heralded as the as the poster boy of corporate psychopathy. Oh, really? I didn't get I didn't get into Madoff's story in my book, but yeah, there's plenty. And of course, I mean the the, the Catholic Church, and that's why I mentioned religion. I mean, there's plenty of. <laughs> Plenty of examples in the annals of religious leadership, past and uh, present. But the Catholic Church and the cover-ups, the systematic cover-ups of child abuse over many, many decades that uh, we've all become very aware of through commissions and investigations and reporting over the last few years, again, to me, indicates high levels of uh, psychopaths inside the the, uh, leadership ranks of the church. That's quite, it's quite fascinating, that side of things with the Catholic Church, because it's, it has been examined, but it also hasn't been examined. So from a systematic level, there's been some investigation around why that went on. Interestingly, though, not at a personality level, which I think is a very important conversation. And maybe when we're thinking about, okay, well, how will that change moving forward? There's a strong argument that there needs to be some form of testing or screening going on. What 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 protocols are in place to control for this moving forward? Yeah, for all organisations. I mean, that's basically the argument um, of my book is, you know, I've been saying to, I've been on some uh, extreme um, right-wing radio stations. For some reason, the radio shows in the US that have shown the most interest in talking to me about my book are <laughs> extreme right-wing um, shows. And when they want to get into a political discussion about it, I say, look, my take on it is psychopaths are everywhere. They're on the left, they're on the right. They're in every organisation. They will... Anywhere that they can see an opportunity for personal wealth and power and gratification, they will they will try to rise to the top of it and probably do quite well because of all of the things we mentioned before, their ability to charm, their ability to manipulate, their ability to be ruthless. Um, you know, as, as I often say, like all of us can do terrible things. We can all be selfish. We can all... Uh, lie, cheat, steal, um, betray confidences. All humans will do that. But most of us, when we do that, we feel bad about it and we try not to do it in the future. Under certain circumstances, we will all do those things for for a variety of of reasons. Um, But when psychopaths do those things, they don't have a bad night's sleep. They, in fact, probably have the best night's sleep that they've had that month. They go to bed (laughs) feeling like a complete winner and a legend because they did that. Um, So I think they, my take is they're in all organizations, they're probably, quite probably within all organizations, it doesn't matter what the flavor is. They don't really have any ideology is my take on it. You know, if we talk about left or right in politics, they don't, their only ideology, as you said before, right, is me. That's their ideology. If they need to look like a Democrat, they'll look like a Democrat. If they need to look like a Republican, they'll look like a Republican. They'll they'll do whatever they think they need to do in order to succeed. It's that idea of the chameleon in many respects, isn't it? Yeah, they're the ultimate chameleon. They can be, you know, they from what I've read. Um, at various stages when they're quite young, and I, I assume sort of in their from age sort of seven through to 17 or 20, 
when they realise that they're different from other people in that they don't have the same sort of empathy and other sort of emotions that are tied in with empathy, that the ones that will go on to succeed learn to mimic and fake that and and learn how to show people what they want to see. And so they become very adept at that. I mean, we all do that to a point, obviously, but they are very, very adept at it. Yes, it's that that line by, I think it was John Johns and Keys back in the day where they said psychopaths know the words but not the music. <sighs> and they are. They can take that chameleon approach. They can mimic emotions and they can mimic behaviour, and they they're quite effective at doing that. It takes a very astute person to be able to see, essentially, as as Harvey as or as Hervey correctly put it, behind that mask. And they do they convey that mask of sanity. But when you're able to step back and look at all those little actions put together, that's when that that character or that true character really does emerge. Nathan. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time to chat and um, congratulations on the book. Thank you, Cameron, and well done with your book as well. It's, uh, it's, it's exciting and it's great to, uh, great to be building the message. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Nathan Brooks as much as I did. You can get a copy of his book that he wrote along with Katarina Fritzon and Simon Kroom, Corporate Psychopathy, Investigating Destructive Personalities in the Workplace. Online, look it up, palgrave.com. is a good place to start, but just Google it, you'll find it. And I'll be back soon. Not sure how often I'm going to put out these episodes, probably a couple of months. Uh, got an interview coming up soon with... A gentleman who runs an organization for chief financial officers in the US talking about his experience with corporate psychopaths and I think I'll also throw up here an interview that I did well I was interviewed on American radio recently talking about the books I'll throw that up as well and I'll be just interviewing experts on psychopaths we'll try and solve this problem together so thanks for checking out the podcast if you want to know more about me go to CameronRiley.com and uh, shoot me an email at CameronRiley at gmail.com if you have some stories about psychopaths that you'd like to share either in private or on the show. I'd love to hear your stories. And check out the book, The Psychopath Epidemic. Hashtag Stop the Psychopaths. Tony Parker, man,